Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey-oh, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And Santosh, I just flew back from L.A., and boy, are my arms tired. (laughs) I tell you, you gotta catch a tailwind, man. You can't just be, like, rushing headlong into whatever and... No, don't be ridiculous. They're tired from all the gesticulating I was doing and bags I was carrying as we returned from our recent trip and live show at LA Comic-Con. We did do a live show at LA Comic-Con 2023 at the Los Angeles Convention Center. In addition to a whole bunch of great cosplay and other wonderful panels and, of course, swag. Do you know (laughs) what there is a ton of at Comic-Con? Merchandise. Yes, and? (laughs) Comics. Keep going. (laughs) Uh, Okay, okay. Um, Sci-fi stuff, uh, celebrities, and then you stay for too long, and then people get gross, and they're hacking and coughing all over you. (laughs) Ah, there you go. Infectious diseases and con crud. So why do I bring up con crud on what is presumably a brand new episode? A week after we've given our talk. And welcome to all of you who joined us from Khan. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so, so much for coming. Thank you so much for participating. Thank you so much for filling up that room. Um, I'm overjoyed. Josh, I think the capacity in that room was maybe 70 to 80. And I think there were only like a few seats left at the end of that. There, That was a full room. And so with infectious diseases in the air, it's that special time of year, the holiday sneezing. 
I'm sorry, season. <laughs> no, you were right the first time. You're correct. With the holiday season comes one of our traditions that we do every year around this time. Of course, uh-huh. I'm speaking about the influenza special. The past couple of years, it's been, you know, the, the respiratory viral special. It has definitely been the COVID special. And one year it was just the COVID season. <laughs> but, Listen, yeah, we, other, we, other we, podcasts get into your ears, but every December mm-hmm. we talk about what gets into your lungs. Through your nose and your sinuses. It's a good now, time. I mean, it's not a good time, but, you know, it's a good time for us. Now, influenza specials have been going on for a long time and not just on our podcast. As far back Mm -hmm. in the Book of Epidemics by Hippocrates in 412 BC, he described a winter and spring epidemic of an upper respiratory tract infection that occurred every year at Perinthus, a port town in a northern part of Greece. And he called it the fever of Perinthus or the cough of Perinthus. And it is supposed to be the first description of a flu-like illness. Now, there's a couple other things on that diagnosis list. But the first example of a likely flu-like illness. Oh, cool. Okay. And certainly they had been discussed and talked about in the past and, and everything else like this. But I think this is one of the very earliest kind of chronicling of the fact that this is an annual event. Everybody gets sick around the same time. We didn't call it influenza until, oh, probably around the 1500s because it has enjoyed uh, trends and rises periodically in popularity. These are not good for (laughs) humanity, Yeah, but it does get around. (laughs) And the name influenza actually comes from Italian, and we get to go into some medical etymology that we haven't done for a while. It's short, but it's sweet. I'm super excited to to talk about this because I, I think you're going to teach me something which I didn't know about influenza, like etymology and whatnot. Makes me super happy. So the Latin influentia, of course, is okay. the influence. But what influence? It means to flow into in Latin. Got it. And technically, in that age, intangible fluid given off by the stars was believed to affect human health. So any disease outbreak that was thought to be influenced by the stars, this predates the miasma theory, would have been known as an influenza. And in 1743, a seasonal wintry epidemic called Influenza di Cataro, the epidemic of Qatar, or I'm sorry, let me give it the, per- the correct infectious disease pronunciation. Qatar. <laughs> yeah, Katara, C-A-T-A-R-R-A-H, Yeah, Katara is the oldie-timey term for, you know, that... Yeah, snotty, coffee, you know, all the, the, the symptoms that kind of sit in your mouth and throat when you have a, a bad upper respiratory tract infection. Of course, we over here in the Western Hemisphere had too much difficulty trying to figure out how to pronounce that word. English is difficult enough. So we just dropped the additional descriptors and started calling it influenza. And that later came to be associated with just this particular disease rather than 
anything that was being flung about up till the end of the 19th century. It was still going by this name, Qatar. But around the 1890s, a scientist, Richard Pfeiffer, described a small bacterium where previously, uh, or he described a small bacterium that he found in the noses of patients with influenza, shortened to flu, called it Uh Bacillus influenza, or it got to be known as Pfeiffer's Bacillus or Pfeiffer's disease. Oh, okay. So as with many, many infectious and non-infectious diseases, it acquired an eponym. Now, at this point, influenza was still thought to be caused by a bacteria, and it wasn't until the 1930s, almost 250 years later, that British researchers Wilson Smith, C.H. Andrews, and P.P. Laidlaw isolated and identified the influenza virus. And that was using throat washings from from patients. So quite a long time to just go from, you know, disease influenced by star fluid to bacteria (laughs) to virus. Yeah, I, I love how the name still stuck with it through the ages. And in fact, Josh, we we still have some of these old school habits, right? When you have a fever, runny nose, cough, congestion, and it's anywhere between November and, uh, you know, about March uh, th- th- here in the Northern Hemisphere, people will say the same thing. Well, they used to before COVID happened, but they said, oh yeah, I've got, I've got the flu. No matter what you had, it could have been a flu-like illness, but the same way that anything, you know, way back when was an influenza, this could be the flu. Now, very interesting what you talked about isolating the actual virus. This is a tough thing to do. You have to have developed a technology where you can have a filter that is so small, um, you know, the pores in the filter are so small that they strain out bacteria. So you gather the throat washings or the snot, you push it through this filter, you are sure there's no bacteria. And then the easiest way to tell that it's infectious <laughs> is to give that snot to somebody else. <laughs> no, it's and not. They get sick. <laughs> and they get sick. And then you're like, oh, well, I know it's not a bacteria now. I know it's supposed to be. And these were somehow how some of the first you know viruses were identified. Granted, in animal models. But yes, this is how we identified viruses in the way, way back time. There's a whole bunch of different flu viruses. But before we get into the ones that affect humans, I'm going to tell you that they are part of a single-stranded RNA virus, the messenger Mm -hmm. genetics. Think of it like a little courier that runs around, but there's only half of that typical twisted DNA strand. And they belong to the orthomyxoviridae family together with, and this sounds like the greatest bacterial boy band ever, or this sounds like the greatest (laughs) viral boy band ever, Isa virus, Uh Fogotuvirus, and Quaranja virus. (laughs) But no, we have influenza. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you staying? I have the go-to virus. Yeah. <laughs> you have that virus. Usually... Is a virus. Yeah. 
<laughs> All of these are really named, you know, usually where they were first isolated or or associated with a person or something like that, which is uh, why they sound a little bit interesting. Um, they're quite cosmopolitan. They were isolated in, in various uh, different parts of the world. And so, yeah, we're, we're stuck with influenza. And Josh, what are the super creative names that we named our influenza viruses? Okay, A, B, yeah, uh, and C. <laughs> oh, were you expecting oh, things to follow those letters? Nope. <laughs> I thought you were using one of those dreaded pausing words that we're not supposed to use while we're podcasting. I was influenza A, uh, and then you went B and C, and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, they're just letter names. Influenza A is the most common circulating type. It is more prone to mutation and shifts and more likely to be responsible for pandemics throughout the ages. Um, Influenza B is a little bit less concerning. C barely makes it into the clubs. It's not on the list. Although we have (laughs) discovered a new genus, Influenza creatively named D, that <laughs> is mostly in pigs and cattle. So it hasn't made the jump to humans, but has the potential to. What else can you tell us about yeah. the flu virus? And we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a, in a bit as we come to our vaccine section and everything. But the biggest thing about influenza is it does like to cross uh, species, animal species, in, in terms of what it infects. So Josh, this is really just a little strand of RNA, right? So RNA is quite unstable. It breaks down very quickly. If it doesn't get into cells and starts replicating new viruses, it, it really just starts to get, you know, get destroyed in a hurry. So because of this, the, the mutation rate is exceedingly fast. So you talked about influenza virus D uh, being in pigs and cattle. And this is the wild thing about the flu, Josh. It does like to skip around between various species of animals and, of course, us humans. So we have these beautiful little proteins, H and N, and they they uh, rearrange themselves. This is just a little bit of strand of RNA, and it will mutate very, very rapidly. And given enough exposures and bouncing around, um, it will change up these antigens such that, Josh, the next year that you meet Mr. Flu A, I know I'm Flu A, I've always been Flu A, but I'm a different Flu A. And your immune system has to recalibrate and figure it out all over again. That is just a single strain of flu. But Mm -hmm. we later discovered in, I think not till 1942, that there was a second strain named Influenza B. And (laughs) once the flu really started to have epidemics in the modern world, defenses needed to be developed against it. And with support from the U.S. Army, the very first inactivated flu vaccine was developed by Thomas Francis and Jonas Salk at the University of Michigan. It was tested across the military and did not become available to the public until 1945. So we already knew all the safety details on it because it was used on our service members. This is a practice I don't love talking about, and it's gotten 
a lot better since the end of the end of World War II. But our ethics were not fantastic, and at that time we knew that there were um, captive audiences, so to speak, in terms of people who we could test stuff on. Some of these were prisoners, and others were the military, and. You know, I we're very grateful to those servicemen and service women because now we have the the flu vaccine and we're saving millions of lives, but it was not at all ethically above board. The vaccine originally only covered strain A, but then they began discovering how to make bivalent vaccines to cover multiple strains. And then in the 1960s, we got trivalent vaccines along with Yay. split or subunit ones. And finally, in 2012, we did it. We achieved maximum valence, quadrivalent vaccines. <laughs> so there's going to be some of our friends out there who are physics and chemistry people. And you're thinking of like the valence shell of the electron, right? This is a fancy way, you know, we kind of co-opted this term. We're just talking about how many strains of virus are included in the vaccine or because these are subunits, how many, the, the subunits, how many different strains are in the vaccine. So, uh, gosh, believe it or not, we have many, many other valences. So pneumococcal conjugate vaccine that we currently give is a 20 point. <laughs> so, all right, fine. The the holy grail, of course, would be a stock vaccine or a universal vaccine that attacks some part of the flu virus that's conserved across all its Pokemon evolutions. Yeah, yeah. So right now, the most antigenic portions, we talked about hemagglutinin and neuraminidase, these proteins. We engineer our vaccines to match the tips of those. So kind of, if you imagine a, a stem of a flower and then the flower itself coming out, that end would be these proteins that help the virus actually invade. And so we recognize those as this is the bad part, go attack that. But that stem, Josh, the stem of the flower that doesn't change all that much year to year, season to season. It is a little bit different from A to B, so we'd still maybe have to do a couple of valences. But if we could learn to, or if we could teach our immune system to hate those stems, those stalks, as much as the ends, the tips of the proteins, then we got a universal vaccine and possibly one that you don't have to give annually as well. So let's talk a little bit about the development of the vaccine. And we're going to start off fairly standard, and then we're going to go absolutely bonkers. So <laughs> okay. each year, the WHO recommends virus strains for inclusion in flu vaccines. The ones recommended to us are based on Australia or the Southern Hemisphere's vaccines of that previous year, what with our seasons being reversed. And each of these targets about three or four strains predicted to be the most commonly circulating in the coming flu season. All this is sort of investigated by disease detectives and other folks who work for the WHO. The vaccine takes about 10 to 14 days to work before our immune system begins to react and make antibodies, which is why even after you get the flu vaccine, you can still be sick a few days later if you were managed to be exposed before your antibodies have been created. So training is an instant. 
takes time. When you do get a vaccine, why do you have to get it get it yearly? Well, it's a relatively short-lived immune response, about 6 to 12 months after vaccination. But even while you are protected by it, although it may be a short time period, the risk is reduced about 50% in people who receive it. Those are pretty good odds for a disease that is present almost in any crowd you go to. Not talking about the risk of acquisition of influenza, it is keeping you out of the hospital. And if we do enough of a good job with herd immunity and we vaccinate lots of people, then we actually halt and pause the, the transmission over time. So now that we know what the flu is and approximately how the vaccine works, Santosh, I want to take you on a trip. Like regular vehicle or Wayback Machine? No, we're going to just use the regular old vehicle. And I'm going to take you on a journey of our artisanal flu vaccine. And I bet you didn't know it was artisanal, but it is. (laughs) It's it's handcrafted. It's handcrafted. Admittedly, no longer small batch, but we are going to go from farm to table, or more accurately, farm to pharma. Okay, all right. Take me down to the farm and bring me to the pharma. So I'll tell you a little history while we're driving there. Starts with a gentleman named Burnett, and he was his first major contribution to the field of virology was a way to mass produce vaccines. As a medical graduate, it became pretty clear that while his skills as a physician were outstanding, he lacked empathy and his bedside manner left something to be desired. So when he applied for jobs, he was offered a post as a registrar in the pathology department instead of a clinical position. However, he started to grow animal viruses in hen's eggs during this pathology job while he's on leave from them in a fellowship. He used a method developed by an American scientist who had figured out how to grow viruses on the chorioallantoic membrane of of chick embryos. Now, the chorioallantoic or CAM membrane is basically the egg white. Oh, yeah. That's the part that feeds the growing embryo, the yolk part, which if you, you know, fertilize and let it go for a bit, turn into a egg. Drawing on the discovery that the flu virus agglutinated, that's from that H in the H1N1, or clumped these red blood cells in chickens, researchers found that large quantities of I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
the virus could be grown in and therefore easily collected in all the salantoic fluids surrounding the chick embryo. And about 90% of influenza vaccines even today are made using egg-based technology derived from this research. It was good enough to keep around for a very long time. It still means that you have to annually find the dominant flu strains. You have to grow them inside of the eggs. And then, you know, you have to, uh, well, Josh, I guess it would be, you know, kind of difficult. You'd have to have like so many eggs and, you know, to make vials and vials and vials of vaccine. Absolutely. Perfect timing, Santosh. We're here. Uh, I want you to take a look around and describe to me what you see without giving any locating identifiers because uh, we're going to get in a lot of trouble if people know where we are. As you know, I grew up in the great Hawkeye state of Iowa. I didn't do a lot of work on the farm, but I've been to plenty of farms. So beautiful open field. Um, before we had, you know, the mass farming of chicken and everything, you'd have your, your coops, right? Where your chickens could hang out and then, you know, come out and, and party, you'd have a rooster uh, going around there. And then you're, you know, you got your cows and your sheep and then fields and fields and fields of corn. And that corn is probably great to raise some of the chickens. But one of the things I think you are very carefully not describing is the presence of an armed guard or what looks like uh, bodyguards near the hen houses. And that's because each day, Across the United States, prize chickens are laying life-saving eggs at secret farms. No signs advertise the farm's involvement in the program. Visits from the outside world are discouraged. The government won't disclose where the farms are located. And the farmers are told to keep quiet about their work. Not even the neighbors are to know. Okay. This has to have the same kind of security as if you're making you know, any other type of, uh, of drugs. So like if you're manufacturing chemotherapy. And you oh, don't no, no. Be... If you're, if you're manufacturing chemotherapy, that is okay. a trade secret. Certainly that's proprietary information, but sure. these chickens are national security. And let's talk oh. about why we're going to start with the eggs. We're going to start with the eggs that go into egg-derived vaccines. They are known as SPF eggs. Uh, Like sun protection factor? Specific pathogen-free from chicken Uh, flocks that uh, have been confirmed to be free of specific diseases required by the USDA or the European Pharmacopoeia, and they have been around since 1961. Not these particular chickens, of course. They're not immortal, but this breed. (laughs) And in fact... And in fact, SPF flocks uh, have to have about three generations, so almost a year and a half without any biosecurity breaks to over 30 different pathogens, ranging from air flu to salmonella, because you have to maintain biosecurity. And during each of these, and in order to achieve these legacy chickens with SPF eggs, they have to undergo... (laughs) <laughs> they have that. to undergo weekly blood sampling. Uh, and all of that is while living in a FAP, filtered air positive pressure house. 
Okay, very cool. <laughs> very cool. Now, I'm I'm very familiar with a lot of these because when we have our animals that we use for experimentation for you know we have our wonderful mice uh, that we use as models for for various diseases and and that one we're testing in there we have the same very strict um I would say precautions that we have on there. The mice uh, are obtained from a company that kind of checks them uh, for pathogens. They are bred and kept in very kind of pristine conditions. Um, they have their normal microbiome and everything, but there's a host of pathogens that we test for and we exclude. And then likewise, you know, they have to be you know, fairly, a, a, you know, strong genetic lineage uh, that we go for that's fairly consistent to take out those variables the apparently the chickens have to be anti-vaxxers as well because if you were trying to create <laughs> chickens if you were trying to create a flu vaccine from chickens the chickens themselves cannot be vaccinated or their the antigens <laughs> or their right it creates a classic chicken and egg paradox yeah <laughs> this is very much a chicken and egg paradox <laughs> or a pair of ducks. Oh, so <laughs> specific pathogen-free eggs from the chickens are loaded up onto trucks and sent to other undisclosed locations. And because this is our nation's supply chain, you can't have our armed forces, much less our citizenry, all down with a disease at once. We've already seen what that looks like. So the supply sure. chain has to be maintained. And that means these eggs need bodyguards. Oh, oh yes, absolutely. I agree. So as we follow the armored truck full of chicken eggs from, <laughs> sure. from the secret farm to the vaccine manufacturer, we then unload mm -hmm. them very carefully. We don't want any to crack. You know how to check it at the superstore. You know how to check at the supermarket. You're always pulling your vaccine eggs from the back. Yeah. <laughs> open the carton and, uh, you know, slight turning of each egg to make sure the shells are all intact. Uh -huh. yeah. Eggs are then placed on a conveyor belt and the shells are penetrated by needles, which then inject a live flu virus into the egg. The hole is sealed up. And they're incubated for several days so the virus can grow in the egg white just as it would replicate in cells in a human host. Then the eggs are loaded back onto the conveyor belt. The top itty bitty one tenth of a percent of eggs are cut off and tiny little suction needles vacuum out the egg whites full of virus. Oh, all right. So, and then uh, ready for processing. So you have to clean out all of the other excess proteins and isolate the virus. And, and at this point, gotcha. So once you have those egg whites, you throw them into a centrifuge because you want to separate any particles like eggshells from the actual egg white virus. And then the virus is killed or inactivated by chopping it up and washing it with various chemicals so it can no longer cause the disease. You purify it and all you're left with is the virus antigen. That is just the part that kind of wears the identifying colors and says, hey, I'm a flu virus. None of the rest of it, none of the parts that can get in, explode your cells, infect you, are all gone, centrifuged away. Disease-free chickens 
Um, they have been raised in a, you know, as pristine of an environment as they possibly could. They've donated their eggs for our use. And now we've been able to grow the virus, uh, isolate it, um, and, and get the particles we need. And this is the big one that you talked about, Josh. And we've gotten better and better and better at this. The egg proteins and everything which can initiate allergies and this kind of a thing, they are all really diluted out and washed away. Now, hens lay just one egg a day, and each egg produces just one vaccine. So the government is buying something like 140 million eggs every flu season. (laughs) They've got to come premium. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And after nine months of loyal patriotic service, the government chickens are then how shall we say, retired when they can no longer lay optimal eggs. They've served uh-huh. their country and uh, and they go to a farm upstate. Oh, wait, they're already at a farm upstate. They're just euthanized. Oh, yeah. And I, I think we looked into this and talked about this a little bit, John. Unfortunately, uh, they're not needy enough to be like food chickens. And of course, they finished laying their eggs. So the utility of them are gone. And of course, if they stay around for long enough, they're going to acquire various diseases and that kind of a thing, which would destroy not only that flock, but it would mess up the environment, like the coops and stuff that they're kept in, which would make it very dangerous to try and raise next year's flock in the same place. Mm, Zombie chickens. (laughs) No, no zombie chickens. I've seen that movie. (laughs) So this is why you may hear on occasion people with egg allergies in the past had been told not to take certain vaccines because while you had eliminated the vast majority of virus, there was still a little bit of egg white that everything had grown in. However, Modern day thought and research really doesn't support the idea that even if you have an allergy to eggs, the amount required to elicit an immune response uh, or a a inflammatory response, an Mm -hmm, inflammatory response isn't really sufficient. So you should still get a flu vaccine. However, if you are still going to resist the idea from egg proteins, luckily, there are two other ways we have of making vaccines now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Just like you said, for a person with mild, even moderate allergy to eggs, if you have anaphylaxis, meaning that, you know, you're actually your throat closes up and all this, then there we make a recommendation to use uh, a a different influenza vaccine, which we're going to talk about. But, you know, the the mild to moderate folks uh, who have, you know, these just a little bit of hives potentially with, you know, eating a whole egg, absolutely this vaccine is safe. But I, I really do love that we have these new ones available for two big reasons. You know, we can avoid a lot of allergies, but just then we can be not have to heard these poor chickens and you know grab all the eggs and let's talk about the two other methods that make the same flu vaccines that are going to be able to protect you from getting any kind of respiratory infection this year 
And one is recombinant vaccine technology. That's the most recently developed of the three methods. Scientists take antigens from WHO-supplied viruses. They transcribe them into DNA. Remember, the flu virus is an RNA virus. So they, they turn into DNA. Then they use a little DNA-carrying special bacteria known as a plasmid and insert those sequences into the fall army worm. The worm, just like eggs, produces huge amounts of flu antigens. Those are exact copies of the ones sent by the WHO. And then that's purified and put in a flu vaccine instead of inactivated virus. Um, So that's made by a Sanofi Pasteur under Flublock or Flublock, if you want to pronounce it the way they probably want. But then they shouldn't spell it like that. <laughs> it is flu block. Yeah, yeah. That you the second one was <laughs> was correct. But this is really lovely. And Josh, this is an excellent way to actually make a lot of different RNA viruses. Instead of growing the viruses and and by the way, all of those wonderful farmers and everyone else are are, you know. They're safe, but the folks who have to inoculate the eggs and everything and grow the viruses in there, it's a, it's a dangerous prospect. But in this case, if you can actually just make the blueprint out of DNA, which the virus usually will never be, and then just throw off a bunch of RNA copies, that's a much safer way um, for manufacturing as well. And you can amplify so much more RNA using bacterial plasma DNA than you can having to, you know, inject an egg and seal it up and <laughs> all this kind of thing. Now, if that's a little too Terminator or Skynet for you, there's also cell-based vaccines where mm-hmm. scientists grow the virus in a line of mammalian kidney cells, which are... Uh, canine kidneys. No dogs were harmed in the making of this vaccine, but the virus, just like with eggs, infects the cells, generates more viruses, which float around, and then scientists separate out the cell media and, again, purify it with a chemical inactivator. Then they burst it apart just to get the surface cells and the antigens, and it's completely egg-free, even from the original WHO-supplied virus. So since it doesn't have to adapt to grow inside mammalian cells, scientists don't have to be concerned about the virus evolving or developing mutations. It's, it's really wonderful. And for everybody who wants to kind of picture this in your mind, when you grow the viruses in cells, this is the Petri dish style. So you put down a layer of the, in this case, mammalian kidney cells on the bottom of the dish. They go to confluence, meaning they're all forming a lawn or a layer. And then you go ahead and put your virus in there, and they will uh, replicate and lights open those cells. Uh, you basically take the lipid right off the top, which will be polymer virus, <laughs> and then purify it. It's really wonderful. Now, even though we do have these egg-based replacements, uh, it turns out the egg-based vaccine is still cheaper than the egg-free ones. So according to the CDC, the Flusilvax quadrivalent, uh, which is, I think, a canine <laughs> kidney one, costs the public around $22 per dose, while mm-hmm. 
the same egg-based quadrivalent vaccine is only $16. All right, so not too much of a, a price increase. And thankfully, well, not too much States. if you're dealing not too much if you're dealing with a single dose, but if you are purchasing in bulk, you know, yes. such as in gallons of gas or $42 million worth of contracted government eggs. Uh, <laughs> those that $8 can uh, or that $6 can add up. I, I definitely understand that. I, I am happy to report that influenza vaccines, though, because they've just been in use for so long and are important and necessary um, to, you know, take care of our population here. Uh, it, um, they are well reimbursed, and a lot of folks, either with governmental insurance, um, if you're on Medicaid, Medicare, or if you have private insurance, almost all of them will help you out in terms of being able to get your flu shot for free. Now, we started this whole thing with military testing leading to a flu vaccine. And I think it only fitting that we leave the table and head back to the military, who is once again testing not the efficacy of the flu vaccine itself, but trying to determine whether or not egg-based vaccines or non-egg-based vaccines are more effective. And the Department of Defense is conducting a very large study across the entire military since around 2021. Um, comparing the effectiveness, and it should give some more concrete answers. And I will link to the description of the clinical trials and the results so far. Um, but yeah, so pretty exciting that we went from the armed forces to chickens, back to the armed forces, and all of this to get you your flu shot this season. And after all of that effort, don't you feel like you should a hundred percent, please do. Um, the influenza vaccine is now tried and true. Um, the safety profile is absolutely excellent. And as always, when, when I say that, it means that your chances of combating the flu, the benefit from it, far, far, far astronomically outweighs the risks of side effect from the vaccine, uh, which almost 100% of the time are local, you know, welt on your arms and pain, a little bit of fear. Um, you're, you're protecting yourselves, you're protecting your family, and you're protecting your community. And now we have wonderful options for those folks uh, who are truly, you know, have major reaction to, to eggs. So, yes, it's a wonderful thing to do. And I, I genuinely hope, Josh, that we find out that we have equal efficacy between all of these different vaccines, because the more different types of methods that you have available, the better. So I'm excited and I'm very happy and I'm super excited for the upcoming influenza vaccines, which will be more universal attacking or, or, or showing the stock proteins from the H and N proteins on to the immune system and everything like that, and hopefully making a, a more universal flu vaccine and perhaps even one that we don't have to give annually anymore. So stay tuned. So that's it for this week. I'd say our annual influenza special once again went over easy. Ah, he said the title in the body of the podcast. <laughs>
If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can find us all over the interwebs on on Facebook, on Twitter, or X, on TikTok. Um, if it's connected to the internet, we'll be there. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. And until next time, as always, keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, a shot in your arm, and go get those shots. And when you've done all of those things, spin a globe, pick a place to go, and happy travels. Bye, everybody. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.